Welcome to episode 30 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and boy, do we have an interesting episode for you. Before we get to that, though, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Paul Reibold. Has your regular life changed at all now that you are a successful podcaster? You know, I find that uh, I'm signing more autographs. But other than that, you know, I'm trying to maintain, to maintain my humble attitude. And from all the way down in Sydney, Australia, the southernmost authority on camera blogging and podcasting is Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Boy, I bet Noelle wakes up every day thanking her lucky stars to have such a wealth of knowledge at arm's reach. Oh, yes, of course. She, she can't believe how lucky she is to have someone like me tell her all about cameras all the time. Anthony isn't with us today as he's battling Miam Bialik and Ken Jennings in a Jeopardy tournament, but maybe he'll pop in at the very end. A couple of episodes back, we talked about having a camera store episode, and now after several weeks of tense negotiating, we're happy to have some guests to talk to. We have some people in the waiting room, some regular contributors, uh, and also a few faces I haven't seen before. Welcoming back is John Gilchrist. John is one of our camera store people. John works at Jeans Camera in South Bend, Indiana. Hey, John. Hey. Hey, <laughs> a man of many words. Yeah. Also returning, not to camera store employee, but a guy who visits a ton of camera stores is Mr. Hong Lee. Hey, Hong. Hey, what's up, Mike? Great. Great to see you back, man. It's been a couple episodes. You've been uh, slammed at work? Been a little slammed at work. Worked all weekend. Uh, got a draft out today, so I was able to make this, which was awesome. And Chuck Miller from Alpine Camera. And where's Alpine Camera at, Chuck? We're in a beautiful downtown displays. Well, actually, I'm leaving. Now. Awesome. It's great to have you. I've been at your store once before. It's been quite a while, but I know Hong is a regular visitor and he mentioned having you on the show. So thanks for coming. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I see Stephen Lederman. Stephen, you've never been on the show before. You want to introduce yourself? My name is uh, Stephen Lederman. As you said, I'm from Canada. I shoot all different formats, all sizes, um, and lots of medium format stereo. Oh, awesome. Super cool. Lots of stereo photography is fun. Yeah. Uh, also returning back is Mark Faulkner. Mark, welcome back. Hey, nice to be here. There is a very large bearded man that I see that just popped in. I don't recognize. Oh, it's Anthony. <laughs> hey, Anthony. Hello. You haven't done the trivia yet? We're in the middle of it. We are oh, okay. halfway through. All right. Well, good luck. Uh, Stephen Grasso. Stephen, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm kind of shocked. I haven't seen Anthony in a while. And he looks like Santa Claus. Yes. Yeah, St when Stephen was in the waiting room, he was showing up as Miranda. So we were wondering who was trying to prank us uh, to maybe hopefully steer us towards Miranda cameras. But uh, I'm glad to see that that might not be the case. You know, let's just get going. You know, we've been on this show now. This is our 30th episode. We've covered a lot of ground. We've talked to some really cool people, different collectors, people who have backgrounds uh, working for Kodak, uh, Stephen Sasson, who invented the digital camera. We've had Canon experts. We've had Nikon guys. We've had Leica guys. Um, what I thought would be kind of cool is, you know, Paul used to work for a camera store many years ago, right? 12 years ago. I retired. 12 years ago. I, I did it for 33 years. So I've 33 years, right. A store or two or three or four. Yeah. John, you've been on the show multiple times before. We know you're at Gene's camera there. Um, I know that sometimes you kind of help them go through incoming stuff and figure out what's worth selling, what's not. But um, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, Gene's? Gene's has been around since 1939. Um, it's currently owned by Jack St. Pierre, who I tried to get here. He may show up. Uh, he is prepping for a big event and it's kind of swamped, yeah. so maybe not. But Jeans is a 
it's a pretty decent sized store and we're pretty diversified, do lots of different stuff. So we're doing pretty well. Awesome. In a town where there used to be four camera stores and now there's four in the whole state. So, yeah. 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 And Chuck, why don't you tell us about Alpine? Well, Alpine uh, was started in 1945. Um I took it over in 1995. Uh, I started in the industry back in 1977. I worked uh, in a store on the very north side of Chicago. If you stepped over to the other side of the street, you would have been in uh, Evanston. And that store was a North Shore camera. And I actually purchased that store in around 1990. Uh, I had it till 97. Ten of us lost our lease overnight. And I had acquired uh, Alpine by that time, and uh, so here I am, still with Alpine. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I the I had mentioned at the start of the show that I had visited you once before, and I remember on that same day that I visited you, I also went to visit Mr. Lee over there in Palatine too, and uh, that was a very interesting store, much much different from yours. That was more or less kind of like a if you could picture what. Um, uh, a camera vomit might look like. That's kind of how I would describe his store. Lots of cool stuff, but man, it was just piled everywhere. But uh, he he passed away recently, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Bob. Was this Mister Lee? That was this Mister Lee who did repairs? Yes. He did. Mm. Okay. Yeah. He's he repaired a few things for me, and he he uh, he was Igor's number one repairman for a long time. It was a very pleasant guy. Except if you brought him Soviet gear. Vlad Kern had brought some Zenits or something to him once before, and he got yelled at. So uh, <laughs> I, I think he liked to pick what uh, he would he liked to touch. Uh, I'll tell you, he could uh, repair just about anything. Uh, we recently, probably a week or two before he passed, brought him a projector that was like from 19, probably 40s. I didn't think anybody was going to work on it. And you know, about 10 days later, he brings it back and I'm like, okay, is this going to work? And we uh, ran a roll of 16 millimeter uh, movie film through it and uh, it fired right up and ran perfectly. So uh, we were thrilled. It's, you know, it's tough now because it's hard to find people that yeah. work on stuff like that. Yeah, we've talked um, in the last several episodes, it comes up often on this podcast about how difficult it is to find people and the number of people are dwindling. So it sounds like you might have answered my first question, but it doesn't sound like you have any in-house repair at Alpine. We do not, but I use probably over 10 different repair facilities where I've kind of figured out what guys can work on what and do a relatively decent job on this stuff. Uh, what about you, John? What, how does jeans handle repairs? Um, we've got, we, we're, we're very similar. We've got uh, a, a number of different facilities that we send stuff to. And, you know, we've got, there's a Raleigh guy and a Mamiya guy and a, you know, Pentax guy and stuff like that. So we, we have a, a number of different places that we send stuff. We, we do a lot of uh, more current digital repair stuff too. And that usually goes back to the factory or to uh, there's a couple of other places that'll, that'll work on digitals. We do a little bit of in-house stuff. Um, I will repair like uh, Kodak carousel ca uh, projectors there. Once you know how to fix them, they have some consistent problems and they're reasonably easy to fix. And there's a few other things I'll work on, but for the most part, we ship stuff out mostly because I just don't have time. 
Yeah, a, a friend of the show, Adam Paul, has a fondness for uh, Panasonic Lumix point-and-shoot digital cameras. And he, um, Mark knows, he, like, reseeding ribbon cables is kind of a common repair that, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there's a lot more that can go wrong than a ribbon cable, but I think that a few simple things can still be done on those relatively easily. But uh, I have to imagine there's not a lot of places that will touch elaborate repairs on a digital camera. The one, uh, one thing I've found is that cracked screens on digital cameras, especially if they're fold-out screens, are pretty easy to replace. Usually pull out a few screws and pop out a ribbon cable and snap a new one in and you're on your way. So that that's one know. digital repair that's fairly easy. And we can do, we do some of those in-house, but generally not anything that would we're not going to do something that's going to void a warranty. If it's right. possible warranty right. work, it goes back to the factory. While we were talking, let's give one more person who joined us. Andrew, welcome to the show, Andrew. Hello. You want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. Just going to ask some questions when, you, okay. when you're ready. All right. Well, whatever. Fire away. Uh, I assume you don't work at a camera store, though? Uh, no, but I grew up near one. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. So, you know, everybody talks about how many camera stores are used to be, how few there are. Um, there are a few that are lucky by location, you know, like Central Camera in downtown Chicago has the benefit of, of you know, a, a colleges and universities that are nearby. But for the other shops that are in some of the smaller towns, like a question I have is like, what what's different about your stores versus the hundreds and hundreds of others that have all disappeared? Like, what was the key to adapting and to still stay open in 2022 that so many other stores couldn't do? Oh man, that's a, you know, that's a great question. Uh, we do so much under one roof that uh, sometimes I'm questioning myself, why are we doing all this? But it keeps us going. Uh, I rent 16 millimeter movie projectors, silent sound. I rent dual eight movie projectors and we'll get people that'll travel 50, sometimes 60 miles to come and rent a movie projector. And then it'll turn into a film to video transfer. And that's helped us tremendously. Um, so it's a little bit off the normal uh, path that you'd think a camera store would do. But uh, it, if you come in here on like the holiday weekend, I had uh, three projectors out being rented and uh, they traveled quite a distance to get them. Uh, I also repair just about anything Bell & Howe. If it's a metal body projector, I got a guy who used to work for Bell & Howe for many years. And uh, he ref- for, you know, refurbishes, refurbishes them like to new condition uh, and puts a year warranty, which is unusual cool. in this day and age. Yeah. So, so that, and we specialize in new and used photographic equipment. So we have, oh my God, just about anything you're gonna want in a 35 millimeter SLR from, you know, Nikon, FMs, FEs, F3s, uh, F4Ss, uh, you know, we cover the gambit and it's amazing what comes in the door. I can't keep my hands on a Hasselblad. I mean, if I buy a Hasselblad, it's typically gone in 10 days. Does Hong buy it? Is Hong, is Hong come up and pick him up from you? He buys a lot of it. Hong has gotten enough of my money. He likes so. my uh, <laughs> Nikon rangefinders. But yeah, he does buy something. You know, I'm loving his work he's doing lately too. So uh, 
yeah, it's uh, it's been great. He's a great, you know, it's great to have him coming through the store. That's for sure. I was curious if Chuck did any photo finishing. If you got a, did you keep your lab or? Okay, so we ended up having to close our lab, and believe it or not, it uh, went uh, out of the, it went to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, to a store I think called Dury's, and now they're out of business. It needed a lot of work, and the structure was collapsing on it. And I don't know if for anybody who knows us, we were in downtown displays since 1945. In 2018, I got noticed that we were going to have to move our store uh, or close the shop. And in looking for stores, not a lot of people let you have a chemical processing machine uh, because they feel that it's not a safe situation or for whatever reason. And so we uh, outlab now and we send most of our film processing to uh, Dwayne's in uh, Parsons, Kansas, and they do a great job. It's, yeah, it just takes a little bit longer, but I got to tell you, people are patient and they're wait. Another thing that they do, which I didn't realize until uh, lately, I was calling on some processing, they shut down the roller processing machines, which would be like a Noritsu V30 or something like that machine. And they've gone to dip and dunk for their negatives. And you can't find that anymore. I mean, and typically when you have a dip and dunk, your negatives come back and they're really in perfect condition. So I like that a lot. Uh, So, you know, it's a benefit for people who are getting negatives that want to scan them. They don't have to worry about them coming back scratched or usually in perfect condition. Yeah. I mean, I do all my processing at home and scanning at home. And I, I generally enjoy developing. I, I like to get everything out, the chemicals and stuff. And I usually have a system. I'll listen to music and kind of, you know, have a little bit of fun, but boy, do I hate scanning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it kind of goes, goes hand in hand. You can, you can develop it and then you got to do something with the negatives, but I enjoy developing at home, but I just do not like scanning. I, John's holding up some <laughs> film there too. I have a question Do people still service them? I have a couple guys that, I was working with that had worked for Noritsu for uh, many years. It would come out and uh, it, it was like a side job, but uh, it was difficult getting work done on that machine. Uh, and that was another reason that, you know, I was like, you know, we are running up until the end of 2018 and, you know, I really love having the machine. Uh, it, it's just that it was so labor intensive and there was always something going wrong and there were parts we couldn't find parts when something would go out on the machine. Yeah, 20, I want to say 2011 is when I last heard that people, like they actually had their real reps come and fix them themselves. Yeah, and it was getting quite expensive just to have them. If you wanted to have a rep come out, you had to sign a contract, uh, a maintenance agreement. I don't know. It was it was really a very expensive proposition. I don't remember quite the price anymore. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. But uh, I had this other rep who had worked with him for years. He did great work. Uh, he, you know, he definitely knew how to turn a wrench and get something going. And um, if anybody ever needs that name, I'd be happy to lend it to you. His name's uh, Mark Graybaugh, but you can always contact me at the store. And I, I'm always helping, happy to help somebody out from another store that might need help in one area or, or another. We've got a V30 and we've got another parts machine in the in the garage to keep it running. And we have the benefit that we have a guy that works on Saturdays in the lab that during his normal week, he's an electrical engineer. 
he's built us like replacement control boards from scratch. Yeah, keeping the Naritsu going is a is a job. Yeah. Are, are there any non-Naritsu alternatives now, like modern alternatives? There's some production. Well, no, there were Fuji Frontier machines that were the competitors with Naritsu, but uh, and I, I think they're actually it's it's probably easier today to get a Frontier worked on than it would be a Naritsu. And there are also a lot of parts available for, for, for the Fuji machines. So I have a question. By my rough calculations, the folks here have camera stroke experience going back to 1977. In the time that you've been in this industry, can you name like three of the biggest changes that you've seen since then? I started actually in 1969. Oh, when I was in college, I worked for, I worked for a, a local store in 1969. And uh, it was actually, it was an interesting story. It was in Springfield, Ohio. And the man who owned the store before the guy that I worked with was a guy named uh, Adler. And he uh, started a company. He moved from when he closed his store, when he sold it to my, my boss, Ed Clayman. When he sold it, he started a company called True Photo, which was a, a photo finisher in, in Dayton, Ohio. When I worked there, he, Ed, had, uh, Ed was from New York. He'd worked at Wellby Peerless for years, and then he was a road salesman. And somehow or other, he wound up in Springfield, Ohio, which was a, very, a pretty fairly small town. But he had New York ideas. So he, uh, he was a real wheeler dealer and a wonderful guy to work for uh, while I was in college. When I left, when I graduated, I went to grad school in, in San Diego and uh, worked for several stores there. Uh, I opened Photomat's first camera stores in 1973 in San Diego. Um, but when I came back to Yellow Springs in 1977, I needed a job. I was going through a bad divorce and I needed a job. So I called Ed and said, uh, I'm coming home. You got anything I could do? And he says, well, come on, let's go. Let's go. We'll talk. So we went to a professional photographers of Ohio show, spent a weekend together and I went to work for him. And uh, that lasted for 10 years. I was found, I wound up, I was the vice president and opened four stores for him in Dayton. And the biggest thing that, that I changed at that point in the industry was the, the advent of photo finishing with the mini labs, uh, because that was, there were industry reports out that each, each home in the U.S., if you want to call it that, would have 12 rolls of film sitting in a drawer. And the point was to try to get that film out of the drawer and get it into the labs so that you know, you'd, you'd get the photo finishing money coming in. So there were all kinds of things uh, that were tried, and I'm sure Chuck, Chuck did this too, free film for life, you know, double prints on Tuesday, all kinds of things that you would do to try to get people to get the film out of their drawer and get it into the labs. And the cool thing was that the labs were, were a profit center. They were, you, you could never make any money selling just cameras. You had to sell the photo finishing, the camera bags, the filters, all the add-on accessories in order to just to even break even because the cameras were, were absolutely zero profit. The only thing you could make on a camera would be your cash discount if you paid your bill on time. It was just, just uh, impossible to do. So the photo finishing end of things was, was a, a real boon for, for camera stores from about 19... 70, 1980. Uh, what, what was it, Chuck? It was about 82 that the mini lab started coming in. Yeah, I would say between 82 and 85, you saw uh, 
the introduction of mini labs uh, in a pretty big way. I remember we went to PMA and we'd been talking about buying one, but we couldn't pull the trigger. And uh, finally, the last day of PMA, I went to Naritsu and bought one. And uh, we were having dinner that night and, and uh, Ed asked me how things had went. I said, they went pretty well. He said, did you buy anything? He said, yeah, I bought a Naritsu. <laughs> I'll ask the noob question. Having never worked in a camera store, what's the difference between a mini lab versus what the option was before that? A mini lab was a self-contained piece of equipment that could develop film, scan it, and print it all in one piece. Uh, the, the regular labs were, were machinery. I mean, they would have one part of the, one part of the building would be devoted to film development. The other part would be developed, devoted to making the prints. And it was a, a much more ornate operation with a mini lab. Anybody could, anybody could uh, get, you had pre-mixed chemistry. I mean, it was the simplest thing in the world to do, but I always got, I always got angry about it because I, I always said that the stupidest thing a dealer would do is take the guy he pays the least amount of money to and have him mix in chemistry. <laughs> it just made absolutely no sense to me. You want your lab manager to do the things that, right. that require the most skill. So uh, the, the mini labs though were, were tremendous because you could, you could churn out a lot of film in a short period of time for not much money. Paul, that's interesting. Going back to the topic of the disappearance of camera stores, is perhaps one of the reasons why so many camera stores disappeared linked to the, the reduction in, in film developing business with the advent of digital? Yeah, it, 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 it was a tremendous problem because everyone, oh, I, the, the stores that expanded the most had the most locations, had the most to lose because they, they lost their roll count. I left Click after 10 years and went to another store that was a competitor, a smaller store, but I had the opportunity to buy into it. For 22 years, we never had a lab. The only, the only processing we did in the store, we had a Kodak picture maker and we had a, a Fuji Picturostat, which were both prints. It could make prints from slides or negatives or copy old photographs, things like that. So we didn't, we never got caught up in it. So when the, when digital came along, we, we were fine because we didn't, we weren't going to lose any business we didn't already have. Chuck, how did it affect you? Uh, for us, um, I had 35 strong commercial accounts. Uh, I had OSHA. I had five police departments, uh, underwriters, laboratory. And, you know, uh, just to give you an example, one of my larger police departments, uh, which was Rosemont, probably around 2005, you know, between 2002 and five, I started to see my accounts fall off. And it hurt in a lot of ways because not only weren't they coming in to do processing, they weren't buying batteries, they weren't buying accessories. So the add-on sales that you know you picked up because uh, somebody was in the store and they're like, "Oh, we need a half a dozen nine volt batteries," uh, you know, or double A's or whatever that little tchotchke was that you had sitting on your counter uh, that they'd walk out with besides their film processing. And you know, oftentimes they'd come in and while they're you know you're writing up their processing, they'd look around and are like, "Ah." Oh, I'm going to come back and get that next time. So he had the ability of a really good upsell, you know, by bringing people into the store. Um, I heard this story one time also from um, a Walgreens executive. And I said, you know, I asked him, I go, you know, why are you guys so big on film processing and selling it so cheap? 
And he goes, because it brings back the customer three times. I go, three? He goes, yeah, the first time to buy the film, the second time to drop it off, and the third time to pick it up. And he goes, while they're in the store, they're always buying more. So it was really brought a lot of traffic through your door that, you know, once it's gone, you can't bring back anymore. I was at the experience. I worked in a retail camera store that was part of a chain of department stores that was actually, it was pretty extensive for a department store camera store. It was a company called Gold Triangle that was owned by Federated Stores, and they were kind of a loss leader in South Florida, had five stores, but the camera department was rather large, and we carried Canon, Nikon, Olympus, Yashica, everything that was consumer, nothing professional, but anytime somebody would come in to pick up their processing, they would always ask us to look at their prints and like, hey, what do you think? And we would always like upsell them on something, you know, either, you know, what kind of camera are you using? And then this new model Nikon came out and they'd come over and look at that. So we always saw a lot of turnover from the people that were buying film and having it processed. Uh, it was it was interesting because every time they did come into the store, it was almost like every single time they wanted to look at the pictures with somebody working behind the counter. Hey, what do you think? They were showing off their photos. So it was kind of the same experience and it kept them coming back usually. So Steven, I'm sorry if I missed it, but where, where did you work? Oh, I'm from South Florida. I worked for gold triangle, which was, okay. and I was there as a very young person. It was back in the days. And Paul probably can tell you this when you could make a lot of money on your spips, your commissions from the cameras. I actually made more money on my commission check than I did from my paycheck. And oh, wow. There was a lot of things we got spiffs on, not just the cameras, but like filters and accessories and things like that. And I even to this day remember, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but I remember one of the reps names, this guy named Eric Gompertz, who repped a bunch of different lines. And we would keep a sheet, a tally sheet of all the sales we had with copies of the receipt and turn it in. And we'd get paid a commission from the rep, not from the, right. not from the store. But uh, I, I worked there. South Florida was kind of a there was a, a number of camera stores here in the Fort Lauderdale area, but they were kind of, they were kind of stepped. Like and we even had darkroom things. We had enlargers, we had Patterson and we carried cult, you know, all these consumer brands. But there was another camera shop locally called click camera that carried large format and medium format. My first Hasselblad I bought from them. I bought my view camera from them. They had a lot of views, professional gear. And then there was a place called I want to say it was called Peterson's. It was in North Miami and it was a Nikon only store that catered to the newspapers. You would walk in there and there was a counter with nothing. There was just boxes of like Nikon gear in the back. They didn't, you just walked in and said, yeah, I need an, an MD2. And they would go get it and give it to you and you'd sign whatever for it. No nonsense, right? Yeah. It wasn't like we have where we're trying to sell somebody a camera and explain the difference between, you know, a SRT 200 and a T 201. It was you knew what you needed. You went there, which yeah. uh, was interesting. Yeah. It changed a lot here that that's all gone. Now there's a couple, there's a couple decent camera shops in South Florida that carry, you know, Leica and Sony and Nikon. There's that guy that repaired our Voigtlanders. Yeah. Yeah. That that's a camera clinic down in Fort Lauderdale beach. And that guy's still around and he has a lot of, a lot of uh, cameras that are CLA and ready to go, but not, not much like what we had, Anthony. It was it's now it's more like FMs and things like that. The the later model film cameras. Yeah. He's got tons of them, but he gets his prices are reflected. You know, they're in the three to four hundreds for a decent working thirty five millimeter, and he's getting it from what I could see. While we were talking, we had Jack St Pierre join us. Hey, Jack, how you doing? Uh, fine. How are you guys? Welcome to the show. So, Jack, you're John's boss. Is uh, that right? Well. 
he lets me think that some. Yeah, he, he likes to think that. Well, uh, we were discussing one of the first questions we posed out there is there were a lot more camera stores 20, 30 years ago than there are today. You know, that number is much, much smaller. And we were asking, what did you each of the stores that are still around? What have you done differently that have allowed you to survive in 2022 that so many others haven't? Well, we had to keep adapting. I mean, you know, we got a, a mini lab and then suddenly we had to get a digital mini lab because instead of just printing negatives uh, we had to print from digital files and negatives it's been hard i mean it's i mean anybody who's been around this business knows that uh, used to be you could rely on a steady stream of income from film sales and film processing and within uh, a relatively short period of time that dried up we're not a very large store but at our peak we sold in one year over a million dollars worth of film. And within a few years, that one income stream dried up. But we found that people were buying cameras at a much faster rate than they used to. I mean, you could buy a good film camera and keep it for 20 years and still took great pictures. But the first digital cameras were, I think the first one we sold was a third of a megapixel and then after a while, it was a big deal. Oh, this one's a megapixel. And then, you know, now we're selling 60 megapixel cameras. So people are, are trading them in or buying them at a more rapid rate than they used to in, in the film days. You don't make a lot of money with them, but, you know, it's, it's good income. And if you sell the accessories, you know, you can stay in business. Uh, we also started doing, you know... Um, rentals and uh, uh, large format inkjet printing and other things that we didn't do 40 years ago. You know, I think it's really easy to just point at digital cameras and say that's the reason. But a question I have for you guys is how much did the big box retailers cause small shops to go out of business? Like, you know, Best Buy, Circuit City, Walmart, Target, you know, uh, those places in this area rose to prominence probably around 2000 ish, you know, mm -hmm. like I remember when I was a kid, there was a camera store, you know, at the local, uh, there was a wolf camera, you know, I could walk to, uh, mm -hmm. there was a stereo shop. I used to ride my bike to an actual stereo shop where they have top gun playing on laser disc, you know, and I always thought it was really cool to see that stuff. There was computer stores. If you needed uh, a sound blaster sound card, you would go to the computer store, but then all those places just disappear because you'd go to Best Buy for that stuff. Would you, would you agree or disagree that that had as much, maybe if not more of an impact than the actual digital cameras did? I don't know. I've never really analyzed that. I know that mail order was a huge problem for us, especially because when the uh, Supreme Court ruled about uh, stores not having to charge sales tax across state lines, we saw a lot of people who would come into our store look at the product, and they would buy it from B&H or anybody out of state because in Indiana, the sales tax is 7%. So you buy a $3,000 camera, you get it out of state, you save $210, and you usually got free shipping. So that was probably as big a problem as the big box stores because traditionally we offer better service, have 
more knowledgeable sales staff in photographic products than Best Buy or J.C. Penney's at one time or Sears or whoever else sold uh, sold photo products. To them, it was a sideline. To us, it was the heart of our business. And uh, you know, I think we uh, I think we were able to compete against that pretty well. But the sales tax thing really hurt us. The sales tax was it, Jack. I agree. When, uh, especially with B&H, we, we never fought Best Buy or any of the, the, the local box houses because all they could really offer would be financing. Mm-hmm. They would have 90 days MS cash or something like that. But their prices were the same as ours. So yeah. it, was, it was the sales tax that was really the issue. Yeah. So what I started doing oh, I, about 10 years before I retired, I started running an ad at Christmas for the week after Christmas. If you got a camera, if you got a camera as a gift and it came from B&H or somebody else, you know, wherever it came from, bring it in. We'll show you how to use it. So that gave us the opportunity to sell them a gadget bag or a felder or get their uh, memory card or whatever it was. So we uh, we fought them to a certain extent because at that time it was bad because uh, B&H, B&H really was selling a lot of gray market product. Uh, in fact, they sold both. They'd sell parallel import and U.S. import. Mm-hmm. So if, if a customer bought a, a gray market Nikon, for example, Nikon USA won't touch them. I mean, they simply will not touch them. They won't fix them out of warranty. They won't fix them in warranty. They won't fix them at all unless you can supply them with a receipt showing that you actually purchased it. In, a, in another country, not that you had it shipped here, but that you purchased it in that other country. Mm-hmm. We fought B&H pretty hard over the, the tax deal, mm-hmm. but we, there was no way you could compete with them because you weren't making six or 7% on the product. Yeah. So you, you couldn't match their price. It just, you would be losing money if you did that. Right. So you just try to make it into an advantage that you know you're not going to sell the camera then sell the rest of the stuff. Well, that advantage is gone now, though, right? Right. Well, yeah, because the BNH is so. Is... No, because the taxes now. You're paying taxes right. now. Yeah. That is correct. Yeah. 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 But it's too late because a lot of the stores that, that could have competed with them have, have right. closed. Uh, that's, it's, it's, that, that, that is already gone. But you, uh, do you think it's coming back, though, because people want to be able to hold something? It, so if the tax now is not the issue, like I'll rather go to Delray Camera than buy something from B&H and Adorama if he's got it in stock because I can talk to him, see it, look through it, you know, test it out. He, I, and now I don't trust buying anything used on the secondary market from eBay because you never know what you're going to get. It's very hard to find something unless you trust them, like you know that person that's selling it. I find it really difficult. And even selling now, you're paying... Not only are you paying that, what is it, that they get 12.5% on eBay to sell? So it's it's kind of tough. It's just... I... Paul and uh, Jack, I, I really have to agree a lot with what you guys had to say. Uh, in uh, Chicago here, or in displays, uh, I think Chicago, the sales tax is currently 11%. Wow. Our sales tax is 10%. Hmm. And... Think it could have been around 2015. Um, I got a full page from the Chicago Tribune because they interviewed me regarding the sales tax. And uh, you're not kidding; it it really hurt a lot. I almost, though, on the other hand, I welcomed the Best Buy. As a matter of fact, 
I can't tell you how many customers over the years Wolf and Ritz would send to our store because there were so many things that they didn't want to handle. Uh, and from that, we'd pick up the upsell of the filters, the camera bags, that additional tripod. And, you know, so that was, you know, that was a really a good thing. I mean, I, I always welcomed competition. I wasn't, you know, afraid of somebody that was in my backyard because oftentimes they were sending people to my door. On the other hand, if I knew I didn't have something, I would send somebody to another local. Uh, I mean, over the years, I've sent many, many people. I'm very good friends with Don at Central Camera. Uh, and I'm sure, likewise, he's done the same for me. But yeah, I welcome the competition. But the sales tax was a killer. It, it really hurt a lot. And if you couldn't figure out a way to uh, work around it, uh, you were in trouble. You know, that's really interesting you guys bringing this up because earlier Hong asked the question, like, what are some of the, the major things that changed? And not having ever worked or owned a store before, thinking of the introduction of mini labs as being a significant event and then sales tax being one I would ever considered. So that's, that's you know, interesting to hear how those events have took their place, you know, along the time. It's interesting the sales tax one, it was actually a bit of an international flow on through as well. Because uh, here in Australia, we would actually buy from B&H because they would obviously discount the, the sales tax. And before the, the Australian government actually came wise to it and started charging us taxes for things being imported, uh, we'd be able to get effectively get the, the goods tax-free shipped all the way to Australia at very reasonable shipping prices back then as well. So you'd end up with um, basically a country full of grey market um, Nikons and uh, and Canons and so on. So <laughs> it, it actually had a, a big flow-on effect to the local stores here as well. And um, we, we saw that that effect flow through. Uh, the big box stores never really took on till a bit later, but they, they did. We've got a, a big box store called Harvey Norman here who, who really sort of jumped into the market and had a big, big impact. Um, but recently there was a... Um, a store, Michael's Camera in Melbourne, that's been around for about 120 years. I think they started off as a gun store, though, and they recently shut down. And interestingly enough, reading their bio, that they say they, they've moved on to an online uh, model only because with the pandemic and their location, and that was the key, their location being in the central business area of the city, actually impacted them a lot because people just weren't coming into work anymore and they haven't really returned as, as much as well. So their foot traffic um, fell by about 80% and everyone's buying things online. So one of the big impacts they're saying is it's the online trading now and they will only sell online. Uh, interesting enough to get rid of their old secondhand stock, they actually uh, opened up their warehouse and, uh, and let people come in on an honor system and, and pick up things for free, which you can imagine um, the queues that, that turned up there, but the the um, but the point is there is it's the on the, the actual foot traffic which finally sort of put the the final nail in their physical store. You know, you guys, Chuck, you've talked about uh, Jack too, how you guys had to diversify your product offerings. You had to be flexible. You had to adapt, right? Like adapt is probably the single biggest word that describes why you've remained successful. So, with that in mind, with when the pandemic started. 
Um, do you feel as though your past history, the past 20 years you've been adapting, did that better position you to survive the pandemic? Or do you think it didn't have any impact? Like, I guess what I'm asking is like, how much of a role in where you're at now did the pandemic have? Actually, it helped us a great deal. Uh, photography is a great social distance hobby. People would buy cameras, go out to the parks, go out different places and take pictures. Uh, you know, they could be distant and yet enjoy a, a, a hobby that was very satisfying. Um, our sales went up dramatically in the last two years. We also found a new revenue stream. Uh, we'd have people come to us and say, my church can't meet anymore or that we can have six people meet. And so uh, we need to find out about live streaming. Uh, some of the local Catholic churches got money from their diocese. They'd get about $4,000, dollars and they were told to start live streaming. So they'd come in with a budget of $4,000 to $4,500, and they'd get cameras and tripods and maybe a switcher. And um, we saw this over and over again. We actually had one church that over the last year and a half, probably spent twenty-five dollars to $30,000 with us. They, they've carried on live streaming after the restrictions were eased up, and they found that it was very beneficial. People who would be on vacation could attend their, their worship service virtually. So we sold a lot of live streaming gear. And it wasn't just cameras, it was tripods, it was lighting, it was microphones, it was backgrounds. Um, even had a uh, kindergarten teacher who came in and she bought a switcher and she had it hooked up to two or three cameras. And she's teaching kindergarten and she'd have one station where she'd do something uh, with, the, with the kids at home and then she'd go over to another place and use another camera. And anyway, so live streaming benefited us a lot. Uh, COVID benefited us a lot. I have never in over 40 years here sold as many high-end lenses for people who are, you know, they'll buy these big 400 millimeter 2.8s or whatever, and they're going out taking pictures of birds and i thought you were going to say they're using them for their live stream <laughs> no no, no totally <laughs> different, totally different we got, we got the they'd be sitting screen. really far away from the screen <laughs> no, no the uh, we've got you know nature loving hobbyists who want to capture that we've got um, people you know using live stream equipment but our sales i mean I could not believe how successful the last two years have been. Chuck, have you seen the same thing? Yeah, well, I'll tell you. I've uh, one thing that I thought had gone away, and it's people doing home processing. Yeah, uh, we started carrying Sinstill uh, for color developing, mm -hmm. and as soon as I put them in, I'm like, "You got to be kidding me! You're going to go home and develop your color negatives uh, in your bathroom sink?" and that was flying off our shelf, our, you know, typical Kodak D76 deck doll and the Kodak supplies for processing. Uh, so that was a big kick. I agree with you, Jack. Uh, our lens business has been, you know, I'm a Tamron dealer and uh, we're just selling, you know, as much Tamron as we could get through the door. And 
a lot of people are going out. Uh, you know, we get a lot of people going out to shooting bald egos. Uh, you know, I've never, I've never seen that before. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I have a guy who um, has, uh, he's on Facebook and he's a phenomenal bird photographer. And, you know, I've seen him all the time, you know, doing stuff, but a lot of people just coming in to buy a lens specifically for shooting birds. You mm-hmm. know, when have you ever seen that in the past? It, it wasn't to any degree like it is today. Um, you know, recording stuff, uh, LED lights, uh, you know, so it opened up a new avenue for, I think, all of us uh, independents. And uh, yeah, we've done uh, pretty well. I mean, other than the very beginning of COVID, when we were shut down for a month, I didn't know what to think. I was sitting at home banging my head against the wall. And I'm like, what are we going to do? And we got back into the store. And the, the first thing we started to do is we started to ramp up our eBay sales. And eBay has been pretty good to us, even though they take a fair amount. We pretty much uh, sell our over uh, supply of used equipment on eBay. So if I get two or three of you know one particular lens, the third one will go up on eBay. I get a ton of used camera bags. I'll put them up on eBay, and you'll be surprised what people will buy. Uh, you know, I'm selling 40, 50 year old items. Um, you know, the other day I sold a Nikon D70s uh, outfit, and I'm like, I was like, I didn't think this was going to sell. It he had two Tamron lenses with it. It was up for like. 15 days and we got what we asked for. So there are people out there that, you know, will buy just about anything. Uh, there's, there's somebody waiting in line for something that you probably yeah. are waiting in line for. A last minute cancellation. I had really hoped to get the guys from Gary camera and Merrillville on the show, but they, he couldn't make it. But I know that they changed throughout the pandemic to where he doesn't even open the store on Fridays anymore. They're mm-hmm. Monday through Thursday and Friday is their eBay day. You know, I, I'll, if I go visit him, usually he'll say, come on a Friday because the store is closed and he'll let me in in the back and he'll brew coffee and we'll just sit there and talk. But while we're talking, he's packaging up his eBay, you know, sales and such like that, too. So, um, yeah, that that seems like um, an, another, you know, way that the, the, the businesses have diversified. I would ask Andrew, uh, are you, Andrew, you're in Phoenix. Do you go to Tempe Camera? Oh, yeah. I, I've known Joe since I was a little kid. So. 30 years of going there. Yeah. That's one of the, that that's one of the great traditional camera stores. Jack, I know you're a, you're a pro dealer and I was a pro dealer for 30 years and Tempe camera is also, they, uh, they were around for a long time. The, they, I always go in, I, I go to, I'll be in, I'll be in Scottsdale in a couple of weeks. And I always go down to Tempe to, to visit that store just to see what they got. Cause they usually have oh, a yeah. lot of cool used stuff. Yes. And, Joe doesn't, well, he's not in there right now. His, he's getting a bit older. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, if you do see him, you can ask him because he's got not only in the used section, but in the repair section, he's just got a wall of, it's absurd. You can ask him for a sneak peek behind the repair department. Uh-huh. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, he told me, he goes, oh yeah, I did just find this in a box. And it was the, a brand new inbox, Rolly 2.8 white face. Well, one of the things that's interesting is that in the photo industry, and, and Jack and Chuck probably, I, I think they'll probably agree, we were all friends. There were very few uh, cam- camera store owners 
had a lot of fun when they got together. And there was a, a big show every year called the Photo Marketing Association Show. Occasionally it was in Chicago back in the old days, and then it moved to Las Vegas. But uh, the, man, the distributors, the manufacturers would have parties. And so the dealers got to know each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we all became friends and we would help each other out. With the pro group, it was a buying group that uh, a lot of the dealers uh, joined. And that was that was good for, uh, I know Jack is a pro de- member. I don't know, Chuck, I don't recall. Are you a pro dealer? No, um, I'm not, but I know a lot of people that uh, are. And uh, I just, I don't know why. Uh, is that I was good, really good friends. I became uh, good friends. I don't know if you guys know uh, University uh, Camera in Iowa City. Right, yeah. Uh, Christensen, uh, Roger, uh, Roger, right, right. Roger was a, Roger was a major player in the, in the, the, uh, the industry. Yeah. Well, I get to, I, I had two kids that went to school there, you know, I'm strolling the streets one day bored and I, I'm like, Oh wow. A camera store. And I was kind of surprised when he, uh, closed the shop there, but, uh, he had a, he had a pretty unique following there. And, um, then I have, um, you know, like you said, camera stores are friends. Well, um, I just drove up to Milwaukee, Wisconsin and uh, met Jeff Dobbs and uh, we went to Summerfest together. And uh, so Jeff cool. Dobbs uh, manages uh, Mike Cravello's camera up in Milwaukee. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it's, I can't think of a better way to, you know, get some great ideas. And, you know, if you need help, you know, have a friendship because, we're such a small community that, you know, if you don't have somebody there to help you out once in a while, uh, you know, Don will walk in my store sometimes from Centro and he's like, can I have these, these? And I go, yeah. I go, I've had them for quite a few years. He goes, called me up uh, a couple of weeks ago and he goes, do you have any more? I go, Don, you took the 12, last 12 <laughs> I had. He goes, I sold them in a week. And I'm like, banging my, I'm thinking, you know, what, what's wrong with uh, us here? We couldn't sell them. But he has such a diverse clientele being in downtown Chicago that yeah. his customer base, yeah. you know, is from all over. I never had any hesitation about stealing ideas from another dealer. Yeah. I mean, that was that was a part of the fun. Do you remember, were, were you around long enough? Do you remember Ralph Altman? Yes, I do. Altman's camera was in Chicago back in the, back in the 80s. Right. I think there were three floors uh, in the store and an escalator. Later, that, and uh, uh, Ralph came down to visit my store in, in Dayton once back in the mid '80s, and it was a big store. It was ten thousand square feet with a walk-in cooler for film, and you know it was it was pretty fancy store. And one of the uh, one of my newer employees was showing Ralph around, saying, "Now this is this, and here we have this, and we're doing this, and and uh, just pointing out all the wonderful things we had." And I pulled him aside and says, "Ralph has a store with three floors." the size of this store and an escalator. <laughs> <laughs> they used to do stuff in that day. Uh, you know, I remember I was in high school and I went down there and Vivitar had this hard shell case that you could wear for skiing or something. They were taking SLR cameras, dropping them out of the third story window to show <laughs> the significance <laughs> of that you know, how strong that case was. And I've, I've never forgotten that. Um, there were a lot of uh, reps uh, that also came out of uh, Altman's that worked for Altman's over the years. Uh, very big store. Uh, so th- for the guys who work at camera stores, 
what have you noticed any changes in your clientele just in terms of like age distribution absolutely and and we're seeing a lot of content creators who are usually younger uh, a lot of people uh doing video with uh mirrorless cameras so yeah it's it's definitely affected our demographic but the thing about camera stores is we've always had a very broad demographic we've serviced people from teenagers in high school to geriatrics um, so it's always been a very broad base it seems like maybe it's skewing more younger now what about in terms of film too are you seeing more film sales in the past five years Absolutely. It's crazy. We cannot keep color film in stock. And a lot of it is driven by young people wanting to do something retro or something different. If you want to see that in action, I mean, I should, I, I wish Don from Central was here because you just, if you're a fly on the wall in Central, it is nonstop college students in there. Like I'm an old man when I go in a Central camera, you know, and I'm only 43. And I just, I, when I was there uh, two weeks ago, I was only in the store just to buy some film and I left, but I saw a girl come in. She had uh, like a Minolta XGA, you know, some consumer level manual focus Minolta SLR. And she had wound the film off the cassette and it was stuck in the camera. And she's like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. It's broken. You know, and the girl behind the counter got out a dark bag. She put the camera in there. She was able to extract it, put it in a cassette, taped it all up and everything. And just hearing the interactions that they have with the people that are there, it's like, that's becoming like this almost new wave of, you know, film photographers. Now, I don't know how big that that's going to get you know like you said jack it's gone up i think it's getting big because i just got back from a trip from the national parks in utah and i cannot tell you how many young people i saw with a 35 millimeter over their shoulder old wow. nikons old cannons olympus om1 we leave this trip we go out to la my girlfriend and i had a visitor daughter who lives out there and she pulls out a photo album she just got back from coachella and she's got pictures in a photo album that she printed from a disposable camera that she mm. bought, $30. I just bought her from the camera shop and gave it to her tonight, a Nikon, like a D80 or something with a little zoom lens on it. Like, and she's like tickled pink and three rolls of Fujifilm. It's growing leaps and bounds. And just mm. from noticing these people carrying them everywhere. That's very true. Like I, I work a block away from Central Camera. And when I go in, I usually go in like three times a week. It's really interesting seeing the age distribution of the customers who go, who go there. And I would say like maybe two thirds are in their 20s or 30s, mm -hmm. and they seem to be the prime consumers of film. I also saw that this weekend at a Chuck store as well. The, the, the three young men, the one with the Leica, where he was, I don't know, some battery issues. So to me, that's very fascinating. I wonder how durable you think that is, especially with uh, increase in prices for film. I don't think they know any better, though. I mean, you know, for people just getting into it now, $15 for a roll of film, that's all they know. So I, I, I don't think it's going to affect them like the people who, who got spoiled with $5 rolls of film. You know, they they probably they've they've bought into it. They've accepted it. And I mean, I, I would love it if color film would, would be easier to find and, and become cheap again. But honestly, the people who are producing it, I don't think they have a reason to lower it, you know, even once supplies come back up because people are already buying it. Well, you know, I guess I it's also a mix now, though, because they're not just shooting just a lot. Most people, I mean, there's a few exceptions, but most people aren't just shooting 
analog and buying film and it's it's an overbearing cost it's actually a you know it's in accommodation with shooting their digital cameras so uh it it does factor into in terms of how much it costs but probably not as much as we think because it's not their primary in, in most cases primary means of shooting i think that it also has to do with the fact that um the more expensive and the more rare it is or the more rare appears the more young people want it. Money is not not a limit. There, there's no limit because they all have like, you know, they come from at least the countries like Australia and America, parents that have money. So for them, an expensive role, it just means that they can afford like an expensive thing. It's like having the latest iPhone or having a very expensive Louis Vuitton bag. So do you also think that affects their film choice too? Like Chuck, you started selling Sinistil fairly recently. Correct. Like do like the younger people, do they prefer more exotic They prefer still because it's more expensive and hard to get. The harder it is to get, the more they want it. And it right. and it's kind of like a sad thing because you're not it's 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 more of a the the hype I think with the younger people is more of a you know the 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 thing being special. Uh, and also the fact that they have to wait for it. Yeah, look at the resurgence of instant cameras now with Instax and people getting old Polaroids and the Impossible Project and all that. I went to an art gallery exhibit Friday and there was a guy shooting with a Polaroid. It's we talked common. about Fuji before. Um, I have no proof of this, but I don't think they realized how popular Instax would become when they started releasing that format. And like Fuji has backed out of almost all other types of film, you know, like they are discontinuing stuff left and right. Yet that Instax is selling like crazy. You know, they I, I just don't think anybody could have predicted the success of that format. I carry an Instax printer with me when I shoot street. You know, I will try to print the picture and give it to people as like a gift for letting me shoot. Oh, you know, at, the, at the firm where I work, whenever we get like a new summer associate or new people at our firm, I take out my SX-70 and I take a black and white of them. But the, for the folks in their 20s, they love just that experience of watching the photo appear. And to them, it doesn't even matter if the photo is qualitatively any good. And I guarantee you, because I'm taking it, it's not, but it's, it's just like this magical experience. It's really cool. I still think it's magical. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I, I started carrying film at our cafe uh, about four years ago when the last camera shop in Gainesville went out of business. And, you know, we've got uh, two fairly large a university and a college, and there's still a lot of interest in film. And so we, you know, I couldn't get anybody to open me up through domestic distribution. So I opened up with Cosmo Photo and we've been carrying their 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 Mono 100. And now we're carrying the the uh, agent shadow 400 and uh you know we sell a fairly stiff clip of film I and mean, people come to the shop just to buy film now we're getting pressure to try to carry Cinestill and carry we, we were carrying one the mono and one the mono 100 and, and 120 and we sold all that we had now that we're having distribution issues getting the 120 film back uh, but i'm seeing an increase in interest in 120 and definitely an interest in the color film but like, I can't get Cinestill to open me up because they are selling it as fast as they make it. And they're really interested in opening yeah. up uh, new retail outlets. Um, Steven Lederman and or Andrew Smith, we haven't heard from you guys yet. Um, do you have any questions? Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be camera store related. So I actually have a bit of a question I've been thinking about. So uh, I noticed on the, the post you uh, did the kind of preview for this podcast, you mentioned that Bitcoin prices had collapsed. And I've noticed a lot of people recently have been calling cameras uh, investments. And they seem to think a lot of cameras, especially Leicas, are a legitimate investment vehicle. And I was wondering what you guys think about that, because I assume you have a lot more experience 
buying and selling Boy. cameras than I do. If you invested in Leicas about seven or eight years ago, then yes, it was a good investment. <laughs> I, I, would uh, I don't know. That, but do you think going forward, I, would you say, because I would think a lot of the markets are driven by rarity and there's a lot of rare cameras out there that nobody talks about, like the Perflex cameras and some of the early like Palabos and a lot of the later, like the the Japanese, like some of the later Leo taxes and Nikas and like the Tanara V3 are all extremely rare. Then you get ones like the, the Condor and the Melkor that like very few people know about, but their prices are relatively low given their extreme rarity. It's because nobody knows about them. Yeah. If like Mike does a review on them and someone famous does a mention of them, then the price will skyrocket. Right. Um, like but- uh, what the, the Minitana. The SRTs, you know, that that model got popular because of that. The Argus C3 for a short while was the Harry Potter camera, you know, and and prices on them skyrocketed for a short while. So if you can time a particular model at the same time Kim Kardashian is seen playing with one, then yes. But I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody else unless someone disagrees. But as a whole, I would very much not advise investing in cameras. <laughs> See, I, yeah. Mike, Mike, I disagree. I, I you think uh, so. Right now, like, for example, Leicas are absolutely money in the bank. I mean, it's 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 at the point where I have a, an M2R, an M5 anniversary, and an M4 anniversary. M4 anniversary is new in the box, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to sell them. I'm actually holding yeah. on to them at this uh, Barnack Leicas right now, if they're in mint condition and you get them repaired, sit on them because they're not going to do anything but increase. Hey, Paul, do you have an M5 on eBay for sale right now? I do. Yeah. yeah I almost pulled the trigger on that the other day. <laughs> I was looking at it for a while because it's like the the bastard child, you know, like. I like that camera. That, that was actually, uh, I went to the Leica school in 1986. And that was the camera I took with me. Uh, and they gave me an M6 to use while I was there. But uh, I, I like the M5. It's, a, it, it is, uh, it's one that uh, real like a purist don't care for. So is the King regular going to be worth a lot now that we've mentioned it a few times on this show? <laughs> I don't think well, so. If Mike, if Mike starts reviewing them again and we, we really go on a full out <laughs> push for it. Uh, I think if you go on a percentage basis, my my King Regula has probably gone up, you know, several thousand percent or something because went from nothing to a couple of bucks. Let's do yeah. an experiment. I I always release reviews on Tuesdays. Tomorrow, my review for the Franca Roll Fix will go live. So right now, all of you guys go on eBay and buy all the Francas and then try to sell them on Friday and see how much money you make. Let's see. Let's put this to the test. <laughs> can, we can ruin that market. Just Yeah, like there you that. go. Yeah, no, I mean, but and Andrew, that was a great question. Um, I would say if you, ex- with the exception of Leica, I, I don't know that it, it's predictable enough to be a valid, you know, way to, to invest. But I will say this though, right now, the, the good like Canon range finders, Nikas, Roloflexes, Hasselblads, yes. um, you know, a lot of those, you will definitely not lose money. So the, the really cool thing about right now is let's say you wanted to try a Nika, go buy one, shoot it for a year. 
let's say you like it, but go, okay, I want to try something else. You will almost certainly sell it for equal to maybe you'll even make a small profit, but you probably, it's like you could rent these things almost and then sell them, flip them to somebody else for probably exactly like they're not depreciating anymore, you know? And then if you can get one fixed, you know, Jess, I mean, any camera you get working again, you've increased its value. So, you know, maybe not quite to invest, but I mean, if you want to go out and try Canon rangefinder, Canon seven, just go buy one. If you don't like it, you're going to get your money back. I you actually know? just bought one. So. Really? There you go. Yeah. I didn't even know that. But I was wondering, because I, I, like I said, I collect a lot of Nikon stuff and I bought an SP a while ago for like $700. And I thought, okay, that's a fair price. But yeah. I was looking and now they're selling for like usually north of a thousand dollars. And that's after maybe a year, probably about a year. Yeah. So I, I just, I was wondering what everybody's opinion was just yeah. out of curiosity. Well, if black, black paint cameras will always hold their value. Like black paint, Nikon rangefinders. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely more than, than regular ones. I bought a black paint M2 in Tucson, Arizona in 2005, not knowing what it was because I wanted to try a Leica. I bought it for $600. <laughs> I sold it for 900 because... The rangefinder, I couldn't get it. I sent it away, sent it to DAG. It took six months. I got it back. I got up out of a table and I nipped it on the corner of a table and I knocked the rangefinder again. So I sold it for $900. I think the last one I saw sold for, I think, 16000 or something crazy. Yeah, last I saw one two years ago for eight thousand, and and it was not in it was not in good condition. It had the black paint simulacron as well. Oh no, that's that's very valuable. <laughs> That level of return would be awesome today, but it's, it's it reminds me it wasn't it like the first Bitcoin purchase a guy bought like a pizza for like twenty Bitcoin and oh, or something. 20, 20 or something. So yeah, yeah. So Chuck, you know, you have a unique perspective in that you you see probably a lot more quantity than a lot of us, except Paul. <laughs> see, I mean, were, were there deals like that back in 05, 06 that you kind of wish you had back, or what's What's like a good one that got away story that you have? There's one that I have that I took home that, Han, you know what it is. It's a prototype Canon rangefinder that they made very few of. And when I say very few, I think under 500. Han, you know the Is it a J? Which one is it? Uh, No, it's like one of the Barnett clones. I can't remember which one. Oh, yeah. One of the first with the unusual lens mount. Did it have the, the L39 mount or was it? I think it was a screw mount, Chuck. Yeah, yes, I believe it is a screw mount, correct. Well, the earliest cannons, the prototypes, the early ones were 39, but they were a different pitch. Right. They called it the Canon J mount. Yeah, uh, the J mount. I might be yeah. right on that. I took it home so fast and hit it <laughs> that uh, <laughs> I, I haven't looked at it because it, it's like going to be my lifesaver one day because uh, uh, I had KEH in here and he immediately offered me a couple grand for it. And I'm like, what do you think this thing's really worth? Because I'm not going to sell it to you. They said, Michael, who works for me, started looking it up and one sold maybe five years ago at auction and got 13000 So I, you know, it's hard to know where, where to go with something like that because uh, it's such a rare piece. Uh, and this one's in really uh, unique condition. It's got a case that goes on it. I've never seen a case quite fit the way this particular case is. I need to pull it out and take a look. Uh, yeah, know. let us let us know. We'll have you on another episode. Chuck, if you have free time, go back. 
Well, one, you should listen to all of our episodes because they're all amazing. Okay. But um, episode 18, we had Peter Kitchingman on, who okay. is uh, one of the biggest Canon rangefinder collectors in the world. Like he wrote the definitive guide to Canon rangefinder lenses. And we, we had a ton of really awesome Canon discussion about some of their less common models and the history and everything like that. But uh, yeah, I, I'd like to know more about that camera. Absolutely. Um, cool. You know, guys, I, you know what? I think everybody needs to sometimes, you know, like a lot of people say, well, these cameras, well, you're paying that much for this Minolta SRT or whatever. If you stop and think if we had to make those cameras today, what they would be. The last Nikon FM3A, I think dealer cost was around $800. If you see them on eBay, a super clean one's going to go for eleven or twelve hundred. Uh, the other thing that I, I will tell you is uh, talking about investment. I was buying Hasselblad five hundred CMs with the eighty millimeter lens, and you know I was picking them up for five six hundred dollars a few years ago. I almost can't buy them anymore because people are realizing uh, a five hundred CM is selling between fifteen and two thousand dollars today, maybe even a little bit more. So those cameras have done very well. Uh, one odd investment that I didn't expect was just the uh, unmetered viewfinders for the F2. Oh, yeah. I bought a copy camera that had one that was brand new and undisilvered, which I thought, oh, well, yeah, no, I like not having, you know, the shutter dial covered. But the, I didn't know that just the finder without being dented is something that you would never think otherwise. A Andrew, you were having some audio problems with you, but... Uh, Andrew's showing uh, an unmetered Nikon F2. And I think a lot of people like those now because one, they look great. But back in the day, you know, this, the standard meters, and this applied to the original Nikon F as well, those were like the ones nobody wanted. You know, the pros wanted the metered, metered head. So a lot of the people who had those didn't see any value in it. And I think a lot of them were probably just tossed in the garbage or thrown in a shelf and forgotten about over the years. But to find... Yeah, I mean, I love how the F2s look with the standard prism because they have that little leather piece over the, the top that um, when you first held it up, I thought maybe that was an FE or an FM, but now I can see what it is. It's the standard prism F2. Yes, so that's one of those odd things that, that nobody expected to be something, I guess. Right. We've gotten a lot of those prisms that people, people bring in boxes of stuff to sell, and we've gotten a, a fair number of unmetered prisms that were just in the box somewhere mm -hmm. yeah. because they'd taken them off the camera, put on an, a, you know, a metered prism and just tossed the other one aside and right. forgot about it. And now they're worth more than the camera is. So if I can interrupt for a bit of camerosity news and, and what I think is the first for the podcast, Steve just bought Paul's M5. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought I heard a cha-ching in the background. there. Yeah. A second ago. yeah, you did. My cash register run. I'll actually, uh, I'll ship it out to you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I sent you a note on if you could ship it to an address. I, I, you know, the only reason I got it is I've been looking at it for a couple of days. And um, when you made that mention about the, the paints, the black paint cameras, and then I did a quick like M5 versus M4P, M4 two, And man, every, every review I read, the M5 is like, everybody loves it. So it'll be a while before I can get a, like a lens, but I'll probably get something yeah, you know, Weightlander or something on it. Someone said earlier that um, commissions is what really sort of drove sales. So, um, Paul, what kind of commission does the rest of the Camerosity crew get? Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll get, we'll get, I'll get back. To, my people will get back to your people on that. <laughs> hey, Paul, 
got a question for you. The M5, because we had one in here this Saturday, and I took a standard PX625 to put it in. We couldn't get the battery uh, cap to close and respond. Uh, we finally found a uh, wine cell that had a little life left in it, and that actually worked, but I don't stock wine cells anymore because they die on the shelf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I had the same thing happen. My uh, On this camera, it has a, a wine cell in it right now, and it works fine, but when I put a regular Vinic or Lupacell or some other 625, it right. doesn't make contact. For some reason, the, the PX13s might have been just a little bit thicker than a 625. And uh, so you can't buy PX13s. If you notice the wine cells have got a little uh, a little uh, tab soldered onto the onto the side on one side. And that's right. what's making contact. So it really has to have the wine cell. Stephen, if you haven't used an M5. It's got one peculiarity. If you if you want to see if the meter's working, it has to have a lens on it because there's a flag that comes down and the flag will not come down unless a lens is mounted. Okay. When you take the lens off, the flag disappears. So that's uh, that's the part that takes the meter reading. Okay. Good to know. So if, if you your, get it, you your... don't have a lens to put on it. You'll think the meter isn't working because it isn't it isn't uh, going anywhere. Well, it's because the little metering cell hasn't come down in front of the focal plane. I'll have to get with you later on lenses because I don't know where to even begin on these. The Voigtlander lenses are good to start with. The the TT Artisan lenses are very good. I happen to like the Leica lenses. Uh, probably the best value is on a dual range Summicron that you can pick up for 900 or a thousand bucks with the finder. And, you know, we're talking about, um, things Paul has sold uh, to people on the show. And we just had Mike Gossett just jump in. And I have a feeling I know what, what he wants to talk to us about. But for those longtime Camerosity podcast listeners, what was it like episode 10? It's been a while. We were talking about affordable like entry points into medium format. And we threw out the Ansco SpeedX, which is an inexpensive folding six by six camera that you can find still 10, 20 bucks. They don't sell for much. Paul, did you give it, give one to Mike or did you sell it to him? Well, he, he bought it from me on eBay and we didn't realize okay. he only lives about 25 miles from me. Okay. So, so Mike, you got the Ansco speed deck that we recommended to you. Um, I see you're smiling. So you're obviously not asking for your money back, but what were your thoughts on that camera? Uh, the camera's cheap. It's affordable. Uh, getting the film develops, not as much, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm just going to have to learn how to do it myself, I guess. Yeah. Well, the results, your first call look great. Pictures uh, look great on your first call. Other than the ones that I double exposed because I kept forgetting to wind the film. <laughs> yeah. That's a learning curve. That's sort of like membership requirements is you have to double expose uh, some pictures, but um, what'd you think of the quality of the images though? I was uh, pretty impressed when, when it got it right with the exposure, it was actually really good. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm glad that you were happy. A satisfied customer, Steven, the M5, uh, my favorite feature of that camera is something that I've talked about multiple times before the Canon EF SLR, uh, the Nikon FG. Uh, there's a few others too, where the shutter speed ring that's on the top plate of the camera overlaps the front edge of the camera slightly. So when you're holding the camera to your eye, your right index finger can kind of go left and right and spin that thing around very easily. And I just, 
I love cameras of that feature because there's very few did that, but it, it just ergonomically fits me perfectly. Yeah. And I like, I agree because I, on my digital cameras, I map all the front wheels as shutter speed for that same reason. Yeah, exactly. It feels yeah. like the digital wheel that you could feel on a lot of digital cameras yeah. today. Yeah. Real quick, since there's a pause here, um, one errata from the last episode, one of the things I said uh, was that Mark Hama had stopped accepting work. Uh, he was the Ashika guy. And I was told that he did stop for a while. I think he had a death in the family and maybe needed to catch up or reprioritize. But Mark Hama is accepting new work. So if you have like a Yashica TLR, the 126G, uh, an Electro. I mean, I, he can do other things too, but he's well known as the Yashica guy because he has a lot of spare parts. So uh, I was told that Mark Hama has, or is still out there fixing things. And to follow you up, I, I sent my Alpha out for uh, repair. So it'll okay. take, I'll get that back eventually. I sent it to uh, Redu. Redu. Okay, yeah. sweet. So he sent me an email saying he got it, but I think it's going to be probably like two or three months before I get it back. But Oh, yeah, but it'll be worth it. I mean, to, to not only have someone willing to work on it, but for it to be someone who was factory trained to like he if you bought that Alpa new, maybe not new, but if you bought that Alpa 40 years ago and sent it back to Carl Heights for work, there's a chance he was the guy working on it. You know, so for to have that experience still alive and still willing to take work, I mean, that that's, you know, resource that won't always be there. So I'm glad to hear that you took, you did that. Man, the amount of money that people have spent as a result of this show is, is, is getting up there. <laughs> so I got to, I was going to say, I really appreciate you guys having me. I got to go, but I got a Bessa L that's going to go up for sale now. So if anybody <laughs> wants a Bessa L with a, the 25 millimeter uh, snapshot, scope are on it are you in a humid climate uh i'm in south florida but this thing's always in air conditioning when you live in south florida you don't live in anything but ac so uh does does is fungus contagious yes they can be what are what are you talking about if you have a lens with fungus should you keep it away from other lenses yes yes you should okay. i mean it, it's not i mean it, it's not going to happen immediately but it can migrate yeah, it's an okay, organic so material. I've grown up in Arizona. I've I've bought lenses that had specks of fungus or tiny spider webs of fungus. Heat and haze is a normal thing here. If you leave a camera in the car, it will get up to 120 degrees, no problem. So right. then, yes, this happens. But fungus I'm not used to. So if I buy a lens and it happens like the tiniest bit of fungus, should I completely quarantine it or should I? It isn't. It isn't going to immediately be a problem, and it isn't going to be a problem. You know. In, in six months, it could be a problem in a year. But if you have a lens with fungus in it, the best thing to do is get the fungus removed. Yeah. Not only will it spread in the lens, it can etch the glass or right. etch the coating. Yeah, so it'll only get it, worse. It'll only get worse. And, and it could, after a period, not be repairable. Right. Yeah. And it's small amounts of fungus. Once you get them removed, it, I mean, the lens is going to perform fine. You know, I mean, it'll probably still perform fine now. It's just like pulsing. It's just going to keep getting worse. I have zero fungus in my house, but it's, I don't want to bring any in. What I would do is go to a, a pharmacy or a grocery store, get a product called Damp Rid. Uh, you may not even be able to find it in Phoenix because you're already so dry there, but it's a, it's a desiccant. It's like a, a bucket of silica gel. And uh, if you isolate the lens with that, that's going to certainly keep it from spreading anywhere else. And then, but then to get it repaired, just send it to somebody who can get it cleaned and, 
and then you won't have to worry about it. I've, I've never had an issue with fungus in South Florida ever. All right, Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. We are at that point, though, unfortunately, where we do want to kind of start winding down. Uh, but before we do that, anybody else have any questions for Chuck? We lost uh, we, we lost a couple other people. John's still here. Theo, how's it going? I'm good, Mike. Going very good. Your last uh, bout at the auctions, did those cameras show up yet? They did. I've, I haven't even had a chance to look at them properly. I think I, I showed you earlier the, the Franca um, the roll, the Franca roll fix, okay. which um, looks really nice and uh, uh, it's pretty good and seems to work quite well. Uh, the Mamiya U, I'm not convinced this will work yet. So it came in a lot. Interesting enough, it was what I was after, but it came in a lot with um, a couple of Hymatics, which I have actually just thrown a couple of batteries in and um, they work. So cool. that, that was a pretty nice little bonus. Uh, and of course, the, the cluster. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Does, it, so, does it work? Do we know? Um, I, haven't even, I haven't even tried yet, to be honest. <laughs> um, I was away this weekend um, in South Australia. Interesting enough, went to a German town in South Australia for some reason. And um, they didn't have the streets paved with Lycas, which was uh, a bit of a downer. Oh, no. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I actually had another purchase come through recently too, which is all I can see is it says something called the Mamiya family, which I've never heard of before, but intrigued me enough to sort of pick it up. Is that called the Corvette? It, it may be. Uh, again, I haven't had a chance to look at that, but it, it came in and it's got the selenium meter at the top. Meter which, on the top, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't think the selenium meter works, but the actual camera seems to work. I can't see that well, but I think that's called the Mamiya Corvette, like the car. Right. Okay. It gives me a good starting point to look it up. Okay. Anyway. Cool. I have a question for Chuck. You know, we all know Paul, you know, is the eBay guy, you know, John works at a store. So Chuck, you, you work at a store too. Do you have a private collection of cameras at home or are there things that come through that you're like, uh, I'm keeping this? Uh, yeah, I have too many. Uh, yeah, I have a lot. All right. So I actually moved a couple of years ago. So I, a lot of my collections still packaged up and I haven't taken a lot of it out, but yeah, I have some pretty unique pieces. Uh, Anything that says photography, it doesn't have to be a camera. Uh, I bought a porcelain Kodak sign uh, in the last year. It's a double-sided sign. I think the film on that it's uh, promoting is like 616 maybe. Yeah, but it's a double-sided porcelain. It really weighs a lot. I have it hanging in my office window and uh, we are concerned about whether or not the window frame would you know, hold it. There is one piece of Kodak uh, memorabilia that I've been looking for, and I see them on eBay sometimes, but Kodak made, uh, I think in the seventies, a bunch of, they look like Tiffany chandeliers, but they're just, they're plastic, but they're red and yellow. And they just say Kodak, you know, and like right. almost like stained glass. And okay. I, I really want to get one of those, but the few that I see on eBay shipping is like 150 bucks because they're fragile. So um, if, if you ever come across one of those, let me know, I'll drive up there to pick it up. We have two of those in the store. Do you really? Yeah. We have ones in Jack's office right over his his desk and one's in our break room they're oh, not for okay. sale but we've got two sale. of them yeah i, yeah. I want one <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and remember to send you a picture of one. Oh, okay so. all right see mike dealers could buy those with co-op funds yeah so you, you didn't uh, dealers didn't actually pay for them they would just uh come out of promotional money that uh that kodak gave them i got i at one time i had a half dozen kodak rubber raft 
rafts uh, in the oh, wow. rubber rafts you know inflatable rubber rafts yeah. okay and the, I mean, they were good they were they were not cheap you know they weren't like blow up balloons they were <laughs> they were serious uh, serious rubber rafts cool. uh anthony do you have anything so i i'm still marveling over the uh the find that i i saw on ebay today and that was a uh roll of Veracrome pan from 1955 that the, uh, the the asking price right now is $155 for one roll of 616 Veracrome. Now, I want to shoot 616 in my uh, Super Iconta, but but not that much. Yeah, something tells me that's going to stay there for quite a while. <laughs> I think that might have been, uh, I think that might have been an error. Yeah. Well, it was 200 and they reduced it. Yeah, by... yeah. They just, put, they just put a discount oh, on it. They, they yeah. marked it down. They marked it down. I shared um, in the Facebook group my results from that 1948 roll of Kodak VPAN I got from Paul, and it turned out surprisingly good. So there's a good chance that film would work, but I don't know if I would recommend paying $155 for it. But no, so I mean, just... for me, the, the, the most fun I had this week was uh, taking out the Metalist loaded up with uh, uh, the infrared Rolly yeah. 100, and then duct taping an IR720 filter to the front of the Series 7 uh, lens hood. It worked really and, well, though. And it worked great. And then yeah. running a roll of uh, a Panatomic X through the Contacts 3, uh, I just thought that that was just one of the best-looking rolls of no, uh, Panatomic no, wait, that I've shot pa in a while. Panatomic? No, it's garbage. It looks like shit. You don't want to shoot <laughs> Panatomic. <laughs> stop Stop promoting it. I'm, I'm tired of being outbid on those rolls. <laughs> yeah, Anthony and I love it, you know, <laughs> but... That that ship is that no that would be an investment is if you could buy and sell Panatomic X but uh, if our words have any influence on Kodak and they're looking for a film to ring back that would be the one I would want without a doubt absolutely because we've seen other slow speed films Paul I got some results from that F key KB twenty five which were really really nice but they just nothing I've ever seen in that speed has the mid tones that Panatomic X has and just nothing that it's like infinite layers of shadow that that's that you can see, you know, we were talking about that cat labs 80 film that they claimed to be like a modern panatomic. No. It, it not at all. I, I don't know where they got that from. Now, the so. only thing that came close was when Adox had their silver max. Uh, and even that was more like a plus X. Cause it was like a hundred yeah. speed film. Agfa a APX 25 is I think the only really true similar yeah. film. And that's just as hard to, if not harder to find. It's really, really uncommon these days. Yeah, I just picked up a hundred foot roll of it. Oh, did you of APX twenty five? Yeah, I won't tell you what I paid for it. You'll oh, never talk I... to me again. <laughs> yeah, that's hard to come by unless you're Cheyenne or apparently you. Don't forget that that tomorrow is one twenty seven film day. One oh, of the three yeah. per year, right? So everybody has to get out and shoot some one twenty seven. Oh, film, then post the result on the gallery. Actually, down here it's today. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Today was already. Yeah, <laughs> you better one, get out. <laughs> I got one question for you guys. Uh, rumor, rumor has it that Kodak is making Fuji two hundred speed film right now. Is anybody yes. hear of that or that's? I think that's confirmed for sure. It is confirmed for sure. When, okay. well, I mean, I don't have insight, but I think I've read that it is. And we were talking about it. I don't remember who I was talking to, but if you develop that film now, it's got a completely different color base right. than the old Fuji 200 did. So it's definitely made by somebody else. And I think it's Kodak doing it or Kodak Alaris. So speaking of film stocks, I have a quick question. Does anyone know if Kodak films are made in China or the U.S. or where they're made? No well, idea. they're still in the U.S. 
Definitely China. made in the U.S. Because yeah. I've actually found um, a, a lot of sellers in China will sell uh, Kodak Vision 3, and they sell it very, very cheap. But I, I was kind of surprised they could get their hands on it because I found places that sell it for like 4 or $5 a roll. Kodak Vision 3? Well, that's a cinema film. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Made, that's made in huge bulks. And what, what they typically do is just chop it up and repackage it for 35 millimeter. Yeah, that's somebody who just came across a master roll and, and – Took it to China and chopped it up. It's 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 made in the U.S. There is a website, Mark. Uh, it's Mono No Aware. Is that what it was? Adam was talking about it. I think so. Yeah. I've never heard of this place before, but it, it, they're legit. And what they do is they get the one thousand foot rolls of vision, and they get what they're called short ends. So they load these huge rolls of film into a cinema camera. Well, you don't want to be filming when you reach the end of a roll. So they like to stop short of the actual end of the roll. And, you know, they don't want to waste it either. But there gets to be a point where if they have 50, 60 feet left over and um, it's too short to start filming again. So they just take it out and then they resell that at for to still photographers like us. So this place sells Kodak Vision 3 for something like 65 cents a foot. Uh, and they're short ends. So that's an a inexpensive option. And you can develop, it is, it does have a remjet backing, which is ECN2, but you can develop that in regular C41 chemicals. You just need to add one additional step to rub the remjet off um, and it will not ruin your chemicals. Now, you don't want to run it through a mini lab, but if you're doing home development, doing remjet film in C41 chems is not a problem. Yeah, I just put the link in the uh, chat. Okay, we'll include that. Yeah, Mono Nowhere, 60 some cents a foot for Kodak Vision short ends. Um, and they make Vision 350, like, so it's Vision 3, and then it's ASA 50 speed daylight balance film. So they're 50D. Um, I've shot a lot of that and I really like the way it looks. Okay, for real now. <laughs> uh, we're going to go. We're going to go. Thank you guys for coming. Uh, we don't have anything planned yet for the next episode, but as always, we welcome your guys' suggestions. Uh, come on the show, steer us. We'll talk about whatever you guys want to. So you guys have a great night and uh, happy 127 shooting tomorrow. Good night. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you, well, thank you. Thank you. for having us. Stephen bought that five from me, and I, I just uh, I've been texting with him to cancel it and uh, cut eBay out of the deal. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He had to pay the tax, and and so I just gave him my commission was like two hundred bucks. Okay. You know, would be my fee. So instead of two thousand, I sold it to him for eighteen hundred bucks, and he doesn't have to pay any tax on it. Oh, that was good. So, That's nice of you.